Greetings and welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibilities. If you happen to be in South Florida, you may be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. On today's show, I'm going to be talking about an argument, an argument that someone had with themselves. This was 400 years ago, roughly. It's a topic that's come up a couple times on this show, and today we're going to dig into it. And you may be wondering, why am I talking about an argument that somebody had about themselves 400 years ago? Hang on, we'll get to that. Note also that this was an argument about religion, so this is inevitably going to touch on some controversial topics, including of religion itself. And we'll probably get to global warming too. So who am I talking about? I'm talking about a French mathematician and philosopher and theologian named Blaise Pascal. He lived around the time of the mid-17th century, from 1623 to 1662. And his argument was essentially a thought experiment. He was trying to figure out whether he should live life as a good Christian, and he was debating whether it made sense to essentially rework his entire life in terms of how he interacted with the world based on the premise that God existed. In his context, there were no multiple religions to consider. He was just treating this as if it is a binary. In fact, in the most famous passage from what we uh, from the text that we now consider to be the seed for this idea of Pascal's wager, Pascal writes in, in French, but I'm giving it to you in English, God is or he is not, but to which side shall we incline? By incline, Pascal means wager in the sense of to which side should we assume is more likely to be true or reason is more likely to be true. And you might say reason is the right word, but Pascal himself notes that when it comes to the existence of God, reason can decide nothing here. He is understanding that he is in a position of very limited knowledge about God and the eternal. He can't say one way or another whether God exists, and so he has to do his best to reason about this idea in a state of profound unknowledge. It's a black box, and as longtime listeners of this show might note, I talk a lot about black boxes on this show and how we interpret what's inside of a black box. For Pascal, God's existence, the nature of God, this is a black box. All he can do is wager in the sense of bet with his activities, with his life, with his afterlife, 
on the existence or the non-existence of God. As he says, God is or he is not. But to which side shall we incline? How, in a sense, do we wager? So in order to try to figure out what is the best way to approach this problem, Pascal creates essentially a grid and He's got two possibilities on one axis and two possibilities on the other. On the one axis is God exists, God doesn't exist. And on the other axis is wagering for God or wagering against God. And in this case, wagering, as I say, is putting your chips in with God's existence or putting your chips in with God's non-existence. And to put your chips in, in this case, means that you are going to live your life as if either God does exist or God doesn't exist. And part of living your life as if God does or doesn't exist would extend to the contents of your own brain. And are you going to be doing things as if God exists in terms of your beliefs, your mental state? Will you align your mental state with either the belief that God exists or that God doesn't exist? So we have these four quadrants. One is that you decide that you are going to wager for God. You're going to believe that God exists and live your life according to that premise and that God actually does exist. In this case, what do you gain? You gain eternal life. You gain an eternity of, well, whatever it is that one believes heaven is. But that's only one of the quadrants. In the other quadrant, looking at where you are believing that God exists, but God doesn't actually exist, then what have you got? Well, you have a lifetime of misery if you are doing everything possible to abide by the will of God as expressed by whatever Bible you have. And Pascal had a very specific Bible that he was going to live according to, and it would be one that would constrain his actions and require certain things of him. So he would be living a very circumscribed life and a life that was godly, which would take away from his fun and would tend towards making him miserable in life. So if he wagers for God and God does not actually exist, then the end result of his wager is a, a wasted life, let's just say, or a life of misery that was completely unnecessary. He could have had a life of debauchery, of uh, dating all those attractive French women in any ways he saw fit and whatever else he wanted to engage in, but instead he had however many years of misery for no gain whatsoever. Then we move over to the other side of the ledger where you are wagering against God. So in this case, again, you have two possibilities. One is that God does indeed exist, and the other is that God does not exist. And here, if you are wagering against God and living your life as if God does not exist, but God does in fact exist, Pascal reasons the following. Well, this is going to be very, very 
very bad. I have lived my life according to whatever is going to give me secular pleasure or benefit. And then I die, I arrive at the pearly gates, and I get the thumbs down from St. Pete. He sends me below ground to the devil, and I am forced to listen to elevator music in a car that goes over speed bumps very slowly for all of eternity, or probably since Pascal lived before the existence of either speed bumps, although actually who knows if they're wagons were forced at parts in the road to go over a series of bumps to slow them down. But for sure, Pascal had some idea of what this eternity in hell would look like, and it looked nothing at all like what later French painter Manet would depict in his famous painting The Luncheon on the Grass, where a bunch of guys are hanging out with a naked lady enjoying many, many fruits. So bad things happen if you pick the quadrant that you wager against God, and God does exist. We are left with one final quadrant here that you wager against God, and God does not exist. That is, you have picked a correct wager, in which case you get to enjoy all those picnics on the grass with naked ladies or whatever else you are able to achieve so far as pleasure and enjoyment in life. And as a French nobleman, Blaise Pascal would have had a a fairly high level of access to those enjoyments, but you, you are limited in those enjoyments to life itself. So, To recap these four quadrants, you have wagering for God, and God does exist, that's a win. Wagering against God, and God does not exist, that's also a win. And then the two losses, where you wager against God, and God does exist, or you wager for God, but God does not exist. Those are the incorrect wagers. And... Just to back up to where we are here, we are talking about the French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal and his ideas about God, and somehow, some way, we're going to connect this in with the particular moment that we're in, but we haven't gotten to that yet. All we have right now are some wagers that might uh, pay off and some wagers that might not pay off. And here's where Pascal comes up with some reasoning that we still debate today. What he says is that the gains for being right about wagering that God does exist are extraordinarily high. This eternity of bliss that is heaven. While the cost for being wrong in this particular way, the cost of wagering for God when God doesn't actually exist, well, that is a cost. You've wasted your life, but you've only wasted your life. You haven't put yourself in a place of eternal torment. Whereas if you take the other side of the wager and you wager against God, well, if you're right, you get this wonderful life. Uh, of of pleasure, uh, and and that's all good. But if you're wrong, the cost is an eternity of hell. It's unending misery. So what Pascal does is he says, we don't know the probabilities here. We can't say for sure that the chance of God existing is one in five or one in a thousand or one in a trillion. 
But according to Pascal, it doesn't matter so long as there is some small possibility that God exists, we're way better off wagering for God than we are wagering against God because the price of being wrong is so high. Here, Pascal is one of the very first people to talk about a concept in probability called expected value. And as an aside, Pascal was one of the founders of probability theory along with uh, Fermat. They had a really interesting discussion that played out through a series of ledgers about what's called the problem of the points and I think it's worth digressing for just a moment on this because it's absolutely fascinating. So the the question that perplexed both Pascal and Fermat was, what do you do if you're playing a game and you have to end the game early? In particular, this would be a game of pure chance, some dice game or flipping coins or whatever it is. Let's say you, the two noblemen get together and they're playing this game and it gets late in the evening and one of them gets called away and they have a pot in front of them of money that they both put in and now they need to adjourn the game before it's finished. But one of them is ahead. Well, how do you decide who gets what's remaining in the pot. You could decide to split it 50-50, but if one of the two is ahead, they have a higher chance of winning the game in the end, and so they should be entitled to what's in the pot. But should they be entitled to all of it? Well, no, certainly not, because the other person still has a chance to win. And I'm not going to go into the details here. There's lots of places uh, that you can find a description of that. I will, in fact, post in the show notes and a reminder that after this show airs on Keystalk FM, it will be uploaded to mattasher.com where you can download it along with any of the other past episodes. Also, if you do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app, you'll also get here. I will add to the website for the show notes for this show some links to some really cool descriptions of the problem of the points. But Getting back to the story and Pascal's attempts to figure out what the best thing to do is in terms of whether he should believe in God or not, he is using expected value as his key criteria, which is to say that he is essentially multiplying the probability of an outcome times the benefit or the loss of that outcome. So to put this in really basic terms, if you were flipping a coin and someone gave you a dollar, if it came up heads and you lost a dollar, if it came up tails and that was a true fair coin, then your expected value is zero. You bet a dollar and you expect to win a, a, an extra dollar if you're right, lose that dollar if you're wrong, but it's 50-50. So you have a 50-50 chance of either winning a dollar or losing a dollar. Your net on that is zero. You have a one-half chance of each one happening. But what Pascal notes is that some interesting things happen in terms of that expected value when you have what is essentially an infinity on, in terms of the gain or the loss. So if God exists and you bet in favor of God, then you win an infinite amount. Vice versa, if God 
exists and you bet he doesn't exist, you have an infinitely negative outcome. So when you put those outcomes into this equation and try to figure out what your expected value is, those that outcome is completely determined by the overwhelming positive and negative. And therefore, according to Blaise Pascal, what you need to do is wager for God. It's the thing that makes the most sense because you're never going to lose more than a lifetime of wasted effort, but you have so much to gain and so much to lose if God really does exist. So even if that possibility is extremely remote, extremely slight, then that's the way you should wager. Now, you may have already noticed that there are some issues with this framework of looking at the world. He was criticized for this, and this this was mostly discussed posthumously. It wasn't a big topic of discussion while he was alive. People got a hold of this line of reasoning, including many theologians, and they had a lot to say about it, as you might imagine. It's noteworthy, of course, that his his possibilities are God exists and God doesn't exist, and embedded in that is the assumption that, well, there are lots of assumptions embedded in there. One is that you know what God wants and you are able to effectively get into heaven by acting in a way that is in accordance with that. That's, of course, an unknown. And, of course, it's an unknown whether even if God exists that you are part of his religion. Everybody assumes, or used to assume anyway, that the religion they were born into was the one true religion, if any religion existed. That is, of course, a uh, an uncertainty there that you can't say for sure is true. It's also the case that even if you assume that you have found the one true religion, and even if you assume that you know the rules, that God will appreciate the fact that you've tried to believe in God, even if you don't actually believe in God. We get into all kinds of weeds here, and I'm not going to get into those, just to say that even even taking at face value his argument in a religious context, there are some very interesting caveats to his line of reasoning or ways in which you could look at this and say, yes, but, and then go on and on about all the ways in which there are subtleties here that are not accounted for by Pascal. However, at base, Pascal is is right on the face of it. If you have a Pascal's wager, what we now call a Pascal's wager, where on one side of the equation you have something that's going to be extremely costly if you're wrong and extremely beneficial if you're right, and on the other side you have something that is going to be mildly beneficial if you are right and mildly detrimental if you're wrong, then really you have to go, even if it's a low probability thing, with the thing that is going to have the highest expected value, with the thing that is going to be the least harmful or the most beneficial if you take that particular wager. What does any of this have to do with the actual world in which we actually live? I'm just about to get to that.
Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Peace Talk FM 96.9 and 102.5 FM. I am talking about Pascal's wager, an idea from a French mathematician who lived a very, very long time ago. And I promised that we would get to the part where this has something to do with our current world today. So we're just going to dive in right there and talk about that. And we're going to get to disease, global warming, some things like that. Actually, let's just start with that one, with global warming. One of the arguments that you often hear for reacting strongly to the possibility of global warming is essentially a form of Pascal's wager. The argument goes like this. We should put every resource we possibly can into stopping global warming because if we are right that global warming, and let's just take a step back here, I need to do this, often we have a hard time talking about the concept of global warming because it's a vague thing that we're talking about and we're not precise about it. For the context here, I'm going to make this as precise as possible when I'm referring in shorthand to global warming, what I'm referring to specifically is the idea of man-made catastrophic global warming. That is that human beings are causing this global warming and that it is going to be catastrophic in nature. You often see roundabout arguments between people where one person is saying global warming is sometimes used to mean just what I said, catastrophic man-made global warming, and at other times is used to mean the warming trend that we have indisputably seen for many centuries right now. So for the context of this show, I'm going to be using global warming as a shorthand for catastrophic man-made global warming, and we're going to evaluate the Pascal wager idea, assuming that this is either a true thing or a not true thing. And the argument goes that if global warming is real, then it makes sense to put all of our chips in this wager in with global warming, because if we do and we're right, well, then we're going to stave off an environmental apocalypse. Although it should be noted that one of the arguments that we go back and forth upon is if you can even stave off this apocalypse. But if you're looking at this through the lens of Pascal's wager, that doesn't matter so much. If there is some chance that you can stave it off by some amount of resources, well, you certainly should put all resources you possibly can into staving it off because the result of environmental apocalypse is so awful that we can't even contemplate it. Who knows how, how terrible it would be. Catastrophic is a, a wide-ranging term, let's just say. Whereas if we put all of our chips in on this wager of global warming as far as putting resources in trying to stop it, and it doesn't actually exist, well, we, you know, we spent a lot of money, but that was it. It was it was worth it because this is a Pascal's wager, and putting all of our chips in to avoid it is a little bit like believing in God, in that if we're if we're right, you know, we we get some extraordinary benefit. If we're wrong, well, all we've lost is some money. 
Now, you may be listening to this and noting that, as with Pascal's wager itself, there are some problems, let's just say, with this line of argumentation. One of them is that we don't have unlimited resources and environmental catastrophe isn't the only existential threat we face. In fact, there are a large number of them. Some people thought that the pandemic was an existential threat to human beings. Regardless of that, there are indisputable existential threats to our continued existence on this planet, even aside from global warming and Uh, Nuclear war would certainly be one of those ways in which we could all go poof. Another would be another asteroid. And let's just look at that one for a moment and look at it again through the Pascal's wager lens. We know that there is a non-zero chance of another asteroid like the one that took out the dinosaurs or that we assume took out the dinosaurs. I don't know where the exact state of scientific thought is on that right now. I think that it is basically scientific consensus at this point that a giant asteroid did in the dinosaurs, and there's a huge amount of evidence to support that. But over the many centuries, scientists have believed a lot of things that they thought had a lot of evidence, and then overturned them. Regardless, though, I think it is correct to say that there is some non-zero chance of an asteroid taking us all out, and that would truly be a a catastrophic, the most catastrophic thing that could happen to us, probably a lot more catastrophic than catastrophic global warming, which we could possibly adapt to even if it was catastrophic for a huge number of us as human beings, a meteor, a meteor certainly, of the size of something that may have taken out the dinosaurs. That means we're all gone. So if that's the case, if this possibility exists, then why aren't we putting all of our resources into detecting and preventing an asteroid from hitting our planet? Why don't we turn our whole economy essentially into a project like the one on, I think it was Armageddon, right? That uh, Bruce Willis goes off to the asteroid and tries to nuke it, drill a hole into an asteroid and tries to nuke it. And I should say, as an aside here, I I recommend that movie. It's a fun movie. And in general, I'm going to make a recommendation here for the Earth disaster genre. And I suppose that's appropriate at this moment because we are talking about a potential Earth disaster. One of my favorite movies is The Core, which is incredibly cheesy and certainly not beloved by the critics, but a super fun Earth disaster movie. Oh, as is The Day After Tomorrow. What we're talking about here is various earth disasters happening, including global warming. And what do we do about that possibility? Well, as I've now mentioned a few of them, you can immediately see that this idea of following strictly Pascal's wager, it's broken down because we have more than one Pascal's wager that we're doing at once, and we just can't put all of our chips in with more than one wager at once. If we go all in on the global warming wager, well, we certainly can't go all in on the asteroid wager, and we can't go all in on the preventing a pandemic that wipes out humanity wager. So we live in a world of limited 
resources and multiple possible catastrophic events. So what do we do? Despite what many may say in terms of arguing that the the equation of Pascal, the reasoning of Pascal implies that we have to put all of our chips in with this particular thing, well, that that's just not going to fly. We're going to have to do some kind of a balancing act. This was very much on my mind early on in the pandemic, where a lot of the arguments went exactly like that. This is so potentially devastating that it doesn't matter what we do to try to stop it in terms of the cost of those things that we're doing to try to stop it. Now, as it turns out, well, Costs have costs. That's a, a funny thing to say, I know. It seems tautological. It seems like how could you question that costs have costs? But in a moment of panic, and these kinds of Pascal's wagers, if they're framed in a particular way, can send you into that into that moment of panic if some scientist says, oh, I've spotted the asteroid. It's coming towards our, our planet. We need to all engage now 100% to prevent it. That could induce a kind of panic where we don't actually we don't actually compute the odds. We don't actually go, well, what are the odds that you're correct? Because if you're wrong, and if we put all of our efforts and resources into this one thing, into stopping this particular asteroid, well that might do some things that are going to be not so favorable for, well, for our lives, of course, but also for any of these other existential crises. I've mentioned before that the loss of GDP, which is to say an economic hit, that's not just a matter of zeros and ones. That has profound implications. Sinking one's economy or taking a huge amount of our resources and dedicating it to any one problem, whatever that problem it is, whether it is global warming as described by the people who think it's going to be a man-made catastrophic event or an asteroid or a pandemic or whatever else, taking all those resources into one that means that your economy is going to suffer, and that means that you're going to have a lot less in terms of resources for other things, including eating and cars and energy and everything else. And actually, let's just touch on that one, that energy one, for a moment. I think we habitually discount the importance of cheap energy. This, for the people who are the believers in global warming, this is something that they don't want to see. They don't want to see cheap energy because cheap energy gets, as the supply and demand thing goes, there's a much higher demand for energy at a cheap level than there is at a a high cost level. And so it's seen in terms of as a benefit to reducing global warming if the price of energy goes up. This is why you have schemes like carbon taxes or carbon credits. These are meant to be, in a sense, fines or punishments for using lots of energy. I should note, though, that energy is to a very high extent standard of living. The quality of our lives is very much linked with the amount of energy we use, and the amount of energy we use or that we can use is very much linked to the price of that energy. If a person is living a very comfortable life, if they are 
upper middle or upper class, then paying another 20 cents at the pump per gallon, that's probably not going to affect their lives very much. On the other hand, if you are at the other end of the economic spectrum, that additional 20 cents per gallon in gas, that's going to make a huge difference. That is going, in some cases, it might mean that you can not have a particular job because that job required you to commute and you can no longer afford the gas to commute to that job. You are more limited and you're certainly more limited in what you can consume Overall, I know that consumerism has a negative connotation for a lot of people, but for a lot of other people, that is the bread they eat. It's the roof over their head. It is the quality of their life. These things, the amount of energy that we consume and the quality of our lives are indisputably linked, as is our health, both individually and as a nation. You may have noticed that people who are wealthier tend to be more fit, more healthy. They live longer. This is true even though a lot of people who are very wealthy, especially if they are entrepreneurs, they have very stressful lives. They work long hours. They deal with decisions that have a, a high level of impact. This is highly stressful, and yet they also tend to live very long lives. Why is that? Well, having money allows you access to better medical care, better food, and support systems. And these support systems, in all their different forms, they keep you alive for longer. That energy or that money, however you want to put it, and those are really very comparable, that is what sustains you and sustains you in life for a longer period of time. So when we're talking about, and to get this back to the idea of the Pascal wager, when we're talking about these things, putting all of our chips in on any one of these particular Pascal's wagers, that means that we are reducing our resources for dealing with any other of these possible wagers that we might want to make to stave off catastrophe, and just in terms of our quality of life and our longevity, and, and this is a very, very big one, which I also mentioned briefly in the episode uh, about the Twin Towers coming down and our response to that in terms of the amount of funds that we put into that, your ability as a country to face down future problems depends on you having reserves, having reserve money, having reserve resources that you can dedicate to things in the future. In a sense, any one of these Pascal's wagers, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, and you take the, the Pascal line of reasoning that it's so important that you do this, that everything should go into this. If you do that, then what you've done essentially is you've planted all your seed corn, and now you're left with nothing for the following harvest. So yes, you may stave off starvation for this particular period, but what happens after that? Summertime, 
Greetings and welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM, otherwise known as the Filter Podcast. And welcome to the final segment about Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician and theologian who, among other things, did some thinking about whether it's a good idea to believe in God or not. And essentially what he did was a little game theoretical, a thought exercise in whether he should or not, and he came to the conclusion that you should because the consequences of not are uh, of not believing in God if God does exist, even if that is a very small possibility, those are too horrible to even contemplate. And so you should put all your chips in with that. I've been talking about the problems with that line of thinking. We did a little bit of discussion of the problems historically in terms of religion itself, thinking that way. But then also when you take this concept of Pascal's wager and you try to apply it to problems that could be catastrophic that we have today from global warming to an asteroid crashing into Earth to the pandemic, then you end up running up against some limits. You end up running up against the limits of our resources and the fact that we can't put all of our resources into one thing or another. And you also run into the problem that putting lots and lots of resources into one thing right here, right now, weakens you for the long term. And I think that that is an extremely important one. And I want to touch some more on that, because if you think about any of the problems that we have here on Earth, the one thing that is most likely to help us overcome any one of them is more resources. Now, I know that might seem like a trivial thing to say, but it's kind of surprising how rarely we take this into account and how rarely we take into account the trade-offs that might diminish this. In the last segment, I talked about the idea of seed corn, the idea being that at the end of the season, you can't just eat everything that you've harvested. You need to set aside something in the form of seed corn, because if you don't, well, you may stave off starvation for that particular season, but you'll have nothing to plant and you will surely starve the next year. And this is part of a general set of trade-offs for any economy and for for any individual person. We can choose to consume what we have right now, or we can choose to invest in the future. Now, of course, we have to do some combination of the two. It's of no use to have a lot of seed corn left over if you do actually starve right here, right now. But I will note that you are constantly making a wager about this and all of the things that you do and constantly trading off the resources that you have right now that you may or may not consume for whatever benefit you may or may not get in the future. And who knows? There's certainly the YOLO argument or the argument that uh, that's standing for you only live once and usually thrown out there along with the idea that you should party it up now because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. That is certainly one perspective, uh, a more conservative perspective might be that you should save up now because you very well might need that tomorrow. And then there's all the places in between that you can be in terms of that spectrum. But one thing is certainly true, which is that if you have 
a huge problem that you are likely to face at some point in the future, the best way you can prepare for that, especially if you actually don't know the exact nature of that problem that's going to come at you, the best way that you can prepare for that is to have a lot of seed corn, is to have a lot of resources at the ready. And now let's get back to what uh, what I'm using as an example here. Let's just call those the three problems that we've identified right now. And this is certainly not meant in any way to be an exhaustive list of the catastrophic things that could happen to us. One of them was global warming. One of them was an asteroid. One of them was a, a, a truly a pandemic that truly threatened human life on Earth. So we'll just talk about those three as possible examples, and all three of them are indeed possible things that could happen to us. And if we're thinking that, let's just say that there is some non-negative chance of one of those or, or any other uh, catastrophic event arising in the future, the best thing that we can do right here, right now, is make sure that we are as strong an economy as possible. This is not just speculation or a possible argument. This is the reality. Highly advanced technological societies with a huge number of highly intelligent people and tons of resources to throw at a problem can deal with a problem much better than, say, primitive societies. And I'm not using primitive in a stigmatized way, but just in terms of technology, if you look at the collapse of a number of different civilizations that have occurred over the years, they were much more fragile to external shocks than, well, than we are right here, right now in the United States. As it turns out, we seem to be most vulnerable to internal shocks here, which shouldn't be that surprising if you think about it for a bit. Internal rot was the most likely way that a giant empire like ours was going to eventually succumb. But regardless, the stronger the position you are in, let's just say this, the more the more chips you have to throw down, the more resources you have to throw at a problem, the more likely you are to succeed at overcoming that problem. This is just a long-winded way of saying that if indeed any one of these problems is actually a an existential threat to us, then maybe instead of taking resources right here, right now, and throwing them at what we think might be a solution, instead what we should do is go all in on becoming the most robust and healthy and resource-filled society that we can. Maybe what we should be doing is making sure that we are storing up as much of that seed corn as possible so that when we actually have that catastrophe starting to hit, and not just the sort of starting to hit in the sense that you look at a couple hurricanes and then declare, oh, it's here, this is it, the end is near, but when you actually have something that happens that takes out, say, 10% of the population or does something really catastrophic, or that scientist really does spot an asteroid 
in in space that does seem with fairly high probability to be headed our way and going to do to us what happened to the dinosaurs, maybe at that point you go, okay, now let's take all these resources that we have accrued and let's put them into that problem. But by prematurely committing resources to that one problem, not only are we blocking off the possibility of putting uh, a huge number of resources into any other problem, but we are just very slowly draining ourselves for that particular problem. And, and here there's one more idea that I want to present on this show, and that is that knowledge, assuming that we are a, a healthy society in terms of our relationship to knowledge, knowledge grows over time and the true nature of a problem is revealed over time. And this is where our situation is very different from that of Pascal. Pascal himself recognized that no amount of thinking, no amount of reasoning is going to allow him to come up with better probabilities for whether or not God exists, nor is any amount of thinking going to allow him to come up with the exact right strategy for following God's orders and getting to heaven. If God does indeed exist, all he can do is decide, well, the Bible states what you should do, and I'm going to follow that. Our situation in terms of any of these challenges is very different the longer we live, assuming that we have competent ways of dealing with new knowledge, and maybe I'll touch briefly on that because I do think that's an open question right now, but assuming for just a moment that we do have ways of integrating new data and new knowledge, every bit of additional data and knowledge gives us a better picture of both the true nature of the problem that we're going to be facing and also gives us more time to come up with innovative solutions. The better we are at using technology, the more we might be able to come up with, for any of these problems, a technological solution and a technological solution that isn't so much brute force in terms of requiring huge amounts of resources. But to get back to that idea of where we're at, uh, let's just say epistemologically in terms of how we know what we know, we're having a hard time with that right now and we are making moves that are stifling, let's just say, of our ability to think and to integrate new information. We are censoring all over the place information that might be wrong or it might be correct, but because we're cutting ourselves off to that flow of information, then we don't really know. We're not necessarily getting smarter. We also, in this particular age, seem to be ruled more by mob mentality and by emotion than facts and reason. I think it's actually very clear that this is the nature of our time. We live in a mimetic society right now where people are ruled by their passions and those passions often explode in, in mob action. Or we do things based on panic and fear. Certainly this is the story of our reaction to the pandemic. It wasn't a cold, level-headed, reasoning, reasoned and calculated decision. If it was, you would have heard a lot of arguments that went like my discussion a little bit earlier about, well, what happens if we actually do put such a huge amount of resources or 
try to freeze-dry the economy, in a sense making fewer and fewer resources available to us for some period of time and disrupting our very complicated supply chains in a way that's going to take and is still taking a long time to recover from. We're still feeling the after-effects for that. So then we have another kind of interesting Pascal's wager to consider right now, or at least to understand the logic of it, if we have lopped off some percentage of our productive capacity, some percentage of our GDP growth by our reaction, well, what have we now left ourselves vulnerable to? One way to look at Pascal's wager is to think of it in terms of avoiding tail risks. Uh, Tail risk is something that may have a very small probability of occurring, but if it does occur, it has a tremendous impact on you. Certainly, the existence of the afterlife would have a huge impact on human beings after they died. The same applies for those threats like global warming or asteroids or whatnot, their tail risks. But it's also worth noting that if you destroy your economy or you do things which disturb your social fabric, that invites other tail risks. Last year, we had a 30% increase in the year-over-year murder rate. Nothing else has ever happened like that. Maybe part of that was BLM, but I think a lot of it was our decision to shut down society to avoid a different risk. One of the other risks related to that and one of the resources that you deplete at your own peril is goodwill. It is people feeling like the powers that be have your best interests at mind. If you want to rally a large group of people to to face a particular threat, to get them to all come together to solve a problem that truly is an existential threat for all of us, well, that's going to require that you get a huge degree of buy-in. Now, let me ask you right here, right now, where we are after the last two years, how easy do you think it's going to be setting aside the huge costs we've already incurred to get that? buy-in.